As you make your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, let me kind of give you an idea where we've been and where we want to go as we kind of contemplate a somber life. If we really consider that the life under the sun, apart from God, is meaningless, that life under the sun is futile, I want to invite you into a special kind of despair. I want you to to be invited into something that may be a little bit more serious, a little less upbeat than you might be accustomed to, but I don't want you to be afraid of it because that temporary despair might actually be a fertile place for for the fruitfulness of God's grace to to really really multiply. And, and, And I shared this with you the last couple of weeks. I want to invite you to despair as you, as you consider trying to find meaning apart from God in the same way that I, I kind of want to invite my wife to find, you know, like I want to invite my wife to despair as she tries to like find uh, a good husband apart from me, right? There's a sense in which like I, I want her to, like if she's sitting around going like, I wish I could find another husband other than Jonathan, I hope that she's depressed. I hope that she's like, as I look for a good husband, I mean, like, I love you guys. I think you're great. You're awesome. These great men in this room. But as she looks to, to you men, she finds herself like looking for a good husband apart from Jonathan is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. It's like it's futility. It's like trying to capture the wind. And, and I want you to have that kind of despair as you look for meaning and identity apart from God in that same way that I want my wife to find joy in me. Like, I want her to, to be content and whole, and I, I want her to be ecstatic and happy and glad at her husband that she has, and not chase something else. And so also, the book of Ecclesiastes gives us wisdom. As a man reflects Solomon, he reflects on gaining everything he ever wanted. Every dream he had came true, and in Ecclesiastes, he reflects on how meaningless it was how each pursuit left him hungry, how each success left him even more discontent. And so as he examines the kind of wisdom that can be gained from the despair that comes from not being able to find joy and meaning and contentment apart from God, we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 9. We'll read the entirety of the chapter, but we'll spend the majority of our time in the first 10 verses. But all of this, that is all that I just kind of capped up or wrapped up for us, right? Kind of all of this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same events happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. 
and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man, but I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. For wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. I want to invite you to contemplate the universality of death. That death is the ultimate equalizer. No one will escape it. And then I want you, cons you to consider the kind of wisdom that can be gained when we think on this. When we consider the fact that if there is no joy that can be found apart from God under the sun, we, we gain wisdom in the way that we actually respond to the things that are under the sun. And here's the place we're going. I, I, I want to get there as, as, as clearly and quickly as possible. I, I always like to leave you with a kind of a simple or, or clear thought, but it's difficult for these last half of Ecclesiastes in that it's like the book of Proverbs. Things jump around. But here's what I want you to know, that godly wisdom is to live in such a way that in this life under the, excuse me, live in such a way in this life under the sun that points and testifies to the reality beyond the sun. Wisdom as as Solomon has unfolded and unpacked for us in the book of Ecclesiastes, is to think and live and act in such a way under the sun such that we are pointing toward, we are drawing attention to the reality, the truth, the eternality of life beyond the sun. So how do we do that? Well, chapter 9 gives us a couple of things. First, it gives us our motive. But what is our motive for thinking about this? Death. Death. You die. Every single person dies. 
And then it gives us a response. Now that we know that death is inevitable, death is on its way, what do we do? We respond then in gratitude. Rather than entitlement, we respond with thankfulness. And so while there is in this life an opportunity to prepare for death, since we know that death is certain, wisdom will be to make the best possible use of the time that we have until death comes. And so we, we, we see here there's this picture of what we ought to do, a few little things. Now, now some of these are not new. Some of these have, have been poking their head out about every other chapter since we began in chapter 1. And so some of them come to a head here, and we've kind of put off talking about them till this point because they really, really kind of come together, and there's a climax here of what we ought to do now that we know that life apart from God under the sun is meaningless. What do we do with this meaningless life? And the response is we gain wisdom by contemplating death. So, very beginning, it says, but all of this, this meaninglessness of life apart from God, I have laid to heart, examining it all, examining it all how a righteous and the wise, the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. I want you to think, like when you're reading Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and I don't know if you're, if you're raised on this, but I want you to think of the little kid's song, he's got the whole world in his hand. I want that like, kind of like echoing in the back of your mind. He has this. God has this. And whether you are righteous or unrighteous, wise or unwise, foolish, ultimately the deeds are in the hand of God. Whether there is love or hate, man does not know both are before them. They're both options. They could both happen in life apart from God under the sun. Let's just start there. This is, this is powerful, right? This, he starts with something that's that, that I, I would argue, remember, on, on a regular basis, when we open the Old Testament, we're seeing the gospel in seed form. Right, so when we open the Old Testament, we're, like, we're seeing the story of the gospel, what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf in, in seed form. It's, it's like a, a preview of upcoming attractions. Right? It's, like a, it's meant to kind of give you a little bit, but not. This is one of my favorite parts of going to a movie, but also, as I've shared with you before, the most hypocritical moment in my life. Right? When I do get a chance to go watch a movie, the previews are coming and they give you just a little taste, and after every preview, I, whoever I'm with, I just look over and go like, I'm going to watch that movie. Man, I can't wait to see that movie. And they should, if they know me, be like, no, you won't. You will not see that movie. You, you might see the next Princess movie that comes out, but you will not see that movie. I promise you that. Right? And, and a preview is meant to do that. It's meant to kind of stir in you this, like, affection for, for what's to come. It's meant to give you a little... A, a, little, a little bitty nugget, a little bit of seed. Like, and it's really tough because, because the, the people who make previews, I would argue, are probably better than, than people who make actual movies. They can make you want to see an amazing movie, and they know how to get your heartstrings, don't they? I mean, you know, like, in a world where, I mean, like, you, you get the idea, you're like, oh, yes, I want that. Like, I, I, can't ex- I can't wait for the next, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie to come out. I, I, who knows what will happen in this one? Maybe, I mean, maybe he'll be the superhero again. I, I could be wrong, right? Or, or like the real catchy ones, I've shared this with you. This is, this is kind of a, a sign of our times and maybe a bad thing, but most of the things that are geared toward uh, adults in our own culture are actually like used to come from children. Just this is what looks, side note, you know, side note here, right? Men of God Summit, right? We have to beware uh, most of the things like video games that used to be geared toward children are now marketed toward who? I'm going to put this in quotes. Men, right? And, and most of the movies that are based on comic books that used to be written for children are now geared toward, big quotes again, men. 
but they, but they kind of get us, right? And they're the best at it. You, you see a preview, and it just shows like a little bit of the symbol of your favorite superhero, and you're like, oh my goodness, oh my, I can't wait to see that. And I don't know, maybe, maybe for you it's different. Maybe they just show you a, like, oh, Brad Pitt, he's, you know, Brad starring Brad Pitt in this, and you're like, yes, I'm going to see that, definitely going to see that, right? Whatever that is for you, see the preview, and you go, I want that. This is what we're meant to do here, beginning at verse 1. You're meant to get a taste for, in seed form, the good news of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus that comes to full bloom that we celebrate this Easter. And this is the preparation. He says, I laid it to heart, examining that all, whether you're righteous, wise, evil, or foolish, all of these things are in the hand of God. What a profound thing for someone to contemplate. What a profound thought. Remember, remember Solomon here. This is a man who achieved everything he set out to accomplish. This is a man who got everything he wanted. Every dream he had, every pleasure he wanted, he did not deny himself, he got it. And what an amazing revelation for this man to reflect upon all that he has achieved, all that he has done, and come to the conclusion that in the end, despite all that he had done, all the control and power that he had amassed for himself, all the wealth that he had collected, ultimately was still in the hands of God. I want you to see the gospel in seed form here. Prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's love or affliction of his wrath. Prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's approval or favor. And hardship, suffering, isn't necessarily a sign of his wrath. This is important. Side note here that that gives this meaning, why this word is especially pertinent for us in the last decade or two in a a fairly materialistic, capitalistic culture like our, like the ones in in which we now live, we've had something that's emerged, and you'll hear me refer to it and others refer to it as the prosperity gospel. There's this belief that if, if you will simply trust God, if you will believe in God and trust in Jesus, then you'll get health, wealth, and, and prosperity. All the things that you want, you'll get if you'll just believe more. We have to be very careful. This is, as we saw last week, this is like a perverted, Christianized version of karma. This idea that you get something that you, you deserve. If you're good, you get good. If you're bad, you get bad. And we would push back and say, that's the anti-gospel. First and foremost, because we know that the worst possible thing that could happen happened to the best possible person, namely Jesus, so that the best possible thing that could happen, namely eternal life, could happen to the worst possible people, namely you and me. And so we don't necessarily think that good things always happen to good people. Newsflash, like, you know, spoiler alert, the symbol of our movement is a cross, okay? It's, a, it's not a symbol of happiness, joy, or prosperity, and then those of us who follow Jesus, who call ourselves Christian, we pick up that cross. We say that death is the end. Suffering is the next step for me. And to undermine that is to, I would argue, undermine the most important thing we believe. That by the suffering of a righteous man, many unrighteous were adopted and made whole. This is, the God, this is good news, man. This is good news. And you see it in seed form here. That sometimes good or bad, God is in control. It's possible, it's just possible that God might be doing something greater than you first imagined. In fact, it might be greater than all that you could possibly ask or even imagine. And it might even be happening 
through what seems like the worst possible circumstances. Now beware, we don't run around saying that, right? We don't like, when something bad happens to a person, please stop for a moment, don't say you had that coming, right? Like you're a sinful, rotten person, you get, please, please don't, okay? Instead, we point toward the goodness of Christ and the joy that he gives. In the meantime, like when suffering and hardship happens, we take wisdom and we hug that person. We just embrace and go, I know how you feel. Or at the very least, we just say, I hurt for you in a way that I can't even possibly understand what you're going through. I love you and I hurt with you. I, I'm not surprised that evil happened. It's what happens in a broken, fallen world run by broken, fallen people. But we begin to consider the possibility that God might actually be doing something. We consider the good news, radically good news, that God might be working all things all things together for good for them that love him and are called according to his greater purpose. You get this? Do you see the seed form here? Do you see this? As he's reflecting on his own life and his achievement, he doesn't say, good for me, I did a great job. He says, ultimately, I did everything I could and I couldn't get the one thing I wanted, joy and peace and contentment because even the best of my attempts won't pull control away from the hand of God. That's the first thing we consider. One commentarian, as he was reflecting on this, a preacher from a couple centuries ago, was reflecting on Ecclesiastes 9, and he says, look, if, if a person is in Christ, though he may have joy, the world will frown upon him. But if a person is without Christ, he may be miserable, even though the world might smile upon him. We, we believe something that is radically counterintuitive. And our motive for thinking about this in this chapter is death. Death comes upon all. He says, he, you see here, he refers to an event. No matter what you do, it's the same for all. The same event happens in verse 2. No matter what you do, this event happens in verse 3. And you go, well, what is that event? And why? why is that event happen? Well, we have the answer. The, the, the second kind of step of this gospel and seed form here, we see, and this is going to hurt a little bit, it says that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts as long as they live. Stop here. Let, let that be a little bit abrasive. I, I, I love Walt Disney as much as the next person, Right? Um, but here's, you, you're, you're not a princess, you're not a snowflake, okay? And, and your greatest hope isn't just to believe in yourself and express yourself. Uh, if I read this right, yourself, you, if you're a children of a human in this room, that's you, your heart is full of evil. And there's madness in your heart. There's this prevailing notion in our culture, if you'll just follow your heart, then then joy will ensue. But the book of Proverbs speaks directly to that. If you follow your heart, it says that there is a way that seems right to us, but in the end, it leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. So we, we have to be careful here. While this pushes back against our, I don't know, how you were raised or what you were inclined to believe, but there's a sense in which like you can be anything, right? That Do whatever you want. Yes, but... But certainly there's a sense in which here that, that there's an unbiblical nugget to that, isn't there? There's, a, there's at least a prevailing notion going on in, in, in the Bible here that pushes counter to what we're often taught, that you're the center of the universe and, 
and what's wrong in the world is out there. It's out there. It's something that happened to you. It's something that they're doing. And the solution is in you. And if you will just express yourself, if you will just impose yourself onto what's broken out there, then everything will be okay. And the gospel comes along and says the opposite is true. We don't have an alien problem with an internal solution. We have an internal problem, and we are in need of an alien solution. We are needing an outside righteousness that could only come from a perfect and holy God to save and redeem what is broken at the depths of ourselves. Don't miss this. It's the gospel in seed form here. It's going to explode abundantly and fruitfully in Easter. We contemplate the possibility that it might be the case that our heart is what is evil. Such that whether, whether you're good or bad, you have hate or love, we don't know. The same fate, death, is the equalizer and reveals our true identity. What you believe about death will change and dictate how you live your life. And we saw this two or three different times in the book of Ecclesiastes, that, that if ultimately things are in God's hands, and he says then that to fear God is the ultimate source of meaning and contentment apart from trying to find it under the sun. That means that God is the source of joy, God is the source of wisdom, and that we gain wisdom as best we can under the sun ultimately trusting in Him and fearing Him. So we live differently. People who, who, who are afraid of God, even in the most literal sense, that word fear in the Old Testament usually is referred to as reverence or awe, kind of a, a, a high and eternal respect for God. But, but even in the most literal sense and simplest sense that a, even a child would understand, like if you fear God, you live different. If at the end of your life, you know you will face God and you will be judged and held to an account for what you did in this life, you live a little bit differently. You, you do things a little bit differently. But if you don't believe that, you live a little bit differently as well. What you believe about what happens after death affects what you do now. It really does. What you believe about death will shape what you think about life. You see, because if you knew the day of your death, it would probably change everything. I mean, if you really knew, if you actually knew the day you are going to die, I bet it would change everything you do that you now live. But here's the problem. We don't know. We don't know that day. And since we don't, we assume that that day will never come. And since we don't know the day, we, we'd rather avoid thinking about it or we'll at least kind of push it out of our consciousness. We'll, we'll push it away from polite conversation. And as a result, we'll just live as though we'll never die. This results in foolishness. We become careless with our time. We become careless with our relationships. We become careless with the things that we have. And this makes, in a world where we don't think about death, regret inevitable. I mean, if you knew when you were going to die, maybe you would do diff things differently. But since you don't, no matter when it happens, you will always feel like you run out of time. Because how you view death will change how you live. You will die. Did you catch the list? All right. The, it seems like the righteous, church-going rule follower dies. The rebellious, sinful, destructive person dies. 
person who managed all their time and resources and prepares for retirement and an inheritance for the children dies. The person who squandered every single moment and cent they had dies. The person, it says here, who who is clean, the person who lives rightly dies. The person who is unclean, the person who lives rebellious and, and casts everyone off of them, that they die. The person who swears, that is the person who has high ambitions and says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to live this way, I'm going to be better. That person dies. The person who rejects that and says, who cares, dies. Every single one of them dies. And when we begin to consider this, I know it's heavy, I know you hate to hear me say this, but when we consider this seriously, we gain wisdom. And it's possible, if I read this right, we see a way in which we gain joy. Life is like a corrupt game we find here. It's like a corrupt game where we, where we at least have two options. So I haven't had a sports analogy in a while. I apologize, I'll give you one. I try to push back from that, but it's March Madness. And this is not just a sports analogy, this is a cultural analogy. And right now, it's madness. Everyone's excited about basketball. Imagine you were in a basketball game. Maybe you don't like basketball. Imagine you were in some other game. I don't know. Settlers of Catan. Right. (laughs) Maybe you like both. Usually you don't, okay? But you're in a game. (laughs) I like them both. It's okay. So... So imagine you, you, uh, you're excited about, about this game and, and, and the game you jump into, you come to find out that everybody in the game is cheating. Everybody in the game is playing by their own set of rules. And come to find out, like in a basketball game, even the referees are in on it. Even the referees are corrupt. So it means that no matter what you do, people are going to cheat and you can't win. And no matter what you're going to do, the people who should stop it, even the people in control over it, they're corrupt And they're in on the whole scam. What do you do? That's the picture of Ecclesiastes, the sense in which like, there's nothing you can do that could change things from ending somewhat unfairly. And there's even the people entrusted with your care. We see a a piece of government mentioned here at the very end and throughout over and over again the chapters of Ecclesiastes. Like The people who are entrusted with your care are still people and they're they're just as subject, subject to being corrupt and broken. And they're, again, remember what you heard, like as... You know, the, the heart of a human being, the son of a human being is, is unclean. They're, they have the same heart as you and me. And so even the people who are supposed to help you tend to be corrupt, and they don't. And so you're left with this thing, like it's unfair and you can't fix it. You can't do anything about it. So what do you do? And I think there's two possible, two possible suggestions that our culture makes, and I think the third one is what Jesus makes. So the first one, you'd be like, why bother? In chapter 9, we're... we're suggested to have wisdom we're suggested to have a third way you you can either quit and run or you can join in the corruption and most people who are looking for meaning and identity and satisfaction and contentment apart from god under the sun will do one of those two things they'll either run and separate themselves or they will join in the corruption And those of us who find our identity in Christ reject both of them. You seen this? You see this in yourself? When things seem unfair, things seem difficult, do you want to quit? Is your first instinct to just mail it in, be done? I don't want to do this. You feel so entitled to the kind of comfort that believing that your God brings that when everything's difficult, you're like, I'm out. Do you do this in relationships? I ask this on a regular basis. How many friends do you have? right now, that you've currently lived through conflict and come out better on the other side? 
Or are you the kind of person that every time conflict hits, every time the honeymoon ends, you find new friends, find a new place? You get it? When it seems unfair, you just move on, you quit, run away, seclude yourself, isolate yourself, you go AWOL. Or the second alternative, typically that the culture tends to encourage, is you just join in the corruption. If you can't beat them, join them. If, if that's the way they're going to play, then let's beat them at their own game. Let's sacrifice integrity, let's sacrifice righteousness and, and a moral high ground, and let's just be in the game. Is this you? Maybe your idol isn't so much like the comfort, but it's more of acceptance, and so you're willing to sacrifice your own sense of integrity, your own sense of right and wrong for the sake of fitting into the game, no matter how corrupt it will be. Here's the thing, you still don't win. And so the third option that we find is that wisdom is the third way. Wisdom from knowing that the game is corrupt, it's rigged against us, there's now a wisdom that can be gained apart from running away and apart from joining in the corruption. Up to this point, the preacher has given us a few reasons for wisdom. In chapter 2, we saw that wisdom by its nature is good because it comes from God, so we seek it for his glory. The second thing we saw is that wisdom ought to be sought out as a third way. In chapter 8, we saw this because even though it may not change the world, it changes us for the better. And then thirdly, we saw in chapter 8, towards the middle, that because we know that ultimately God will judge what is right and wrong, what is wise and what is foolish, even though folly and foolishness and corruption wins now, folly does not get the last word. God does. So in chapter 9, we have two more reasons, two more motives for wisdom. The first one, and we see the first half of this, is because ultimately our lives are in God's hands. And wisdom testifies to the character of God, even if it is under the sun. And we gain wisdom from knowing that even though we're living under the sun apart from God, we sense sense that He is still present with us, He remains with us, even in the presence of wickedness and folly. The second thing we see is that we ought to seek wisdom. It's suggested for us to be wise because wisdom as a way of life is better. So before I illustrate what it is to gain wisdom with some very, I would argue, practical things we see in this text, before we kind of walk through what it looks like to live wisely and some very practical steps, I want to at least kind of point out to you what it looks like in our current culture, what it kind of looks like in the way that our human nature tends to respond to this feeling of being out of control. Because before I illustrate what it means to gain wisdom, I want to illustrate the opposite. I want to set the stage by illustrating what wisdom is not. We saw here that recognizing that things are in God's hands, that death is inevitable, and that responding in wisdom, ultimately trusting in God, seeing that death is the end of this, we don't necessarily fight against death, but we know that it is inevitable. We, We take our lives and we begin to realize it is a gift we realize that it is a present something we do not deserve and we respond accordingly we even saw the analogy here of a a dog and a cat did you catch that dogs are better than cats did you get it it's it's right in the bible you'd rather be a dog than a dead cat unfortunately that's kind of not true in the sense that even though a lion is a cat it's like an awesome cat And there's a sense in which if we had the choice between being a dog and a lion, we would naturally take the lion. Now, our culture doesn't understand this. We live in a culture where we put dogs in, like, purses. I've seen dogs in strollers. That's that's an American thing. That is not an Old Testament thing, okay? 
You have to picture what it would look like if no one liked dogs and they had to subsist on eating things that, just so you'll know, the ancestors of dogs survived because they had enough bacteria in their stomach so that they could survive on eating other animals' feces. Okay? This is what makes dogs special. Think about that next time they lick your face. But you have to like get underneath. This isn't, as you understand dogs, this is not what we're talking about here. Picture like the outcast, the, the dog that kind of runs amok. If you've ever visited a third world country, you know what this looks like. Every, every dog is a mangy kind of a mutt who's like subsisting on scraps or again, next time he licks you, feces. All right, so, so this is what a dog would have been like. It would have been awful. No one loves a dog. No one, no one, never in the Bible do you hear man's best friend be a thing. And so we see here this, this, this stark contrast. You're better off being a dog who subsists on eating and surviving on awful things than a lion who's dead. What, I don't know if you caught this, what a polite way of calling you a dog, right? You're a dog, but it's better than being a dead, a dead cat. You're a dog, but it's at least better than being a dead lion. You're barely making it, but in your life, you have a hope and a wisdom that the dead lion can never have. So when we see the kind of the worthlessness or meaninglessness of life apart from God, we tend to respond, and I would push it this way, in the face of despair, we're tempted to become Eeyore. And when we think about our death, we're tempted to either sit and wait for it, or worse, we actually hasten it. We either sit and pout until death gets here, or we not consciously typically work to get it here. Now the people who are working to make it happen faster, they're the ones who think about, they don't think about their death or they think about their death and, and simply just want to fight against it. These people typically drive fast motorcycles. This was me at one point. I still have this in me. I would love, if you have a motorcycle, I'd like to ride it, okay? Um, but I would do so in a sense, kind of like hastening my own death. This is a lot of fun. This is probably statistically going to end badly, but it's really cool. So you can kind of see this, the people who are like passively destroying their own lives. This can sometimes happen by eating. They're destroying their lives by what they eat, not caring about what, what happens, okay? Or maybe they're destroying their lives by relationships, just piece by piece. They're just kind of like alienating themselves and treating themselves, wishing that they were dead and, and treating their life like this. Or the opposite, what we tend to find more often, is a form of passive aggressive response to the coming of death. Now, I mean passive-aggressive in its strictest sense. So passive-aggressive typically is what we, a lot of people talk about, and they really just mean someone who's like sarcastic and cynical and says things like under their breath. But passive-aggressive behavior is actually uh, something more like this. It's, there's an indirect resistance to the demands of others and the demands of life. It's an avoidance of direct confrontation, either through procrastination, pouting, or simply intentionally or subconsciously misplacing important materials. There's kind of a repeated failure to accomplish simple requested tasks, even sometimes things for which someone is explicitly responsible for doing. So passive-aggressive, as the, as the DSM describes it, behavior is, it's a pervasive pattern of negativistic attitudes and passive resistance to the demands for adequate performance in social and occupational situations. So I don't mean passive-aggressive like someone who's just like kind of angry and like th that can be a passive-aggressive behavior, but passive-aggressive behavior is that you're working against something, but instead of confronting and admitting that you're against it, you act like you're 
you act like you're for it, but then subtly, the word passively, work against it, right? Sure, I'll be there tonight at seven o'clock, but then between now and seven o'clock, I'm going to passively say every possible, say yes to every possible thing that could make me late to that thing at seven o'clock. People looking for an excuse to this. Now, I'm not talking about procrastination for something that just seems difficult. That, that happens. I'm talking about the kind of procrastination that exists when you actively find anything better to do than what you ought to do. Because, friend, if that's the case, you may have something to repent of. It, there may be something going on here that's deeper. There may be an issue about your own either fear of death or your misunderstanding of death. And I need you to dig into that. I need you to think about what that means. Now, it might be simply passive-aggressive behavior. It's like a strategy we use when we don't really think that we're in control or that we don't really think that we have value. So it shows up like this. You have threat-based questions. Have you ever had these questions before? You're not wearing that, are you? You ever had one of those? Maybe you've said that. Don't do that. It's not nice. You're like, well, n- not now. I mean, obvi- obviously, no. I just, ah, this is a joke, right? This is, this is the kind of, when, you, when you're asking questions, instead of to get information, you're using them to manipulate the situation. That's a form of passive, indirect, aggressive behavior. When you have like wistful statements to get your way, right? Like, oh, I wish someone else, I wish somebody would have invited me to the party. Okay. Well, instead of like saying, hey, is there a way that I could be a part of this party? We just manipulate Backhanded compliments. You ever gotten one of these? Uh, it's, like a, it's like an insult and a compliment rolled into one. You don't know which it is, right? Like, I don't know. Um, one, one, of my, one of my worst was, I remember when I was a, a pastor and there was a, a man who was kind of in a seniority over me and over a, a couple of different churches. He was kind of well-respected, but whatever. He's passive-aggressive. And so I'm standing there with a bunch of these pastor friends of mine and he looks at me and like, and we were a part of bringing a kind of a sleepy dead established church to life. And God was really blessing it. And his way of saying, hey, God's really being glorified by what God's doing here. Yeah, yeah. He goes, man, you sure are doing a lot better than I thought you would do. Like right in front of these other four, four other pastors that I respected. I was like, oh. And every, I mean, I don't know if, if you're like me and you have a pretty quick, biting, cynical, sarcastic response. I had about 50 rolling in my head at that moment. And I just saved them until today I told you, right? I just, <laughs> you ever had a backhanded compliment? You know, instead of just saying what you think, this may be a, a form of folly or foolishness. Maybe you just say nothing. Sometimes this kind of evasion is, is what you see happen on a regular basis. Now, instead of just being present and speaking directly, there may be a kind of an aggressive behavior toward life. And instead of thinking, like we're supposed to think here, that life is valuable and we ought, to, we ought to cherish every single moment, you waste those moments. Do you know where you see this the majority of the time? I say this as much as I can because I think this is the battle for our culture. It's with this. It's with a smartphone. If you'd rather connect with a bunch of other people who are not in the room than the people who are face-to-face with you, friend, that is a passive-aggressive behavior. That is a form of saying, I don't like where I am. And if you're going to do that, just give them the courtesy of being honest and say, hey, if you'll wait just a minute, I'd rather pay attention to something other than you. At least be honest. At least say, I don't like what's happening in the world. This, this is, if we're not cherishing and leveraging every moment for the glory of God, I'm, I'm going to 
warn you, you might not be gaining wisdom, and I don't want you to be a fool. There might be something to repent of here. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not those things. Maybe if, if you just find yourself cutting or leaving people out silently, this, evas- this kind of evasion, like inviting all the people you want instead of confronting the person that you don't. Maybe if you like subtly sabotage someone, maybe you're like subtly keeping score, someone else doing better or worse than you. You find yourself saying things like, I'm not mad. And instead of like admitting your feelings, you just deny them. If you find yourself saying like, if you say the word whatever more than a few times in a day, this is you. Like, oh, oh, that bad thing happened, whatever. And instead of actually saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm hurt or I would like a better outcome, we deny our feelings. I'd call it sulking. The other kind of passive-aggressive behavior, if you make a lot of commitments and don't keep them, oh yeah, I'll be there, and then you won't. If you're habitually late to everything because you deep down don't want to be anywhere, beware that there's, there's something going on here. There's a wisdom that Solomon has for you. Maybe if you find yourself accusing people of having higher standards than what you wish they had, you'll see this coming out. Do you, do you get this? Do you, do you feel this? I've, I've noticed this in, in my own. If you find yourself saying, I was just joking, this is, this is for real for me. Instead of expressing your hostility out loud, you do it in like socially acceptable, indirect ways. And this way, you can have like a biting, cynical sarcasm. But if anyone calls you on it, you can play the victim and say, well, why can't you take a joke? Ever been there? Friend, if it really is better to be a live dog than a dead lion, then we will leverage the time that we have. We will consider death and we will act accordingly. And the wisdom that we will start to display will look radically countercultural, won't it? Won't it be amazing when the people who gain wisdom from this, when they actually think it's better to even be a living dog than a dead lion, they actually start to love and cherish the time they have? So you'll ask, so what do we do? I'm glad you asked. Here's a stark alternative, beginning in verse 7. This is what we do. This is what it looks like to have wisdom in the world. Very simple. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has approved of what you do. He's approved of this. He's laid this out for you. It's his gift. He says, let your garments always be white and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. I don't know if you put that in your, uh, your Valentine's Day card. I just want to enjoy all the days of my vain life with you, baby. That's what I want. <laughs> but it's there that this is one. And so here's what I would say to you. Like, this means that we take seriously things like eating and feasting. I I know this is going to push back on some of you. Drinking wine, okay? Go into that just a second here. Having gladness for the company that God gives you. You're prepared for celebration. You see that garments always white and oil always on your head. This is what we're called to do. This is what it looks like for us. And this means that everything we do starts to radically stand out in our culture. One of the ways I saw this, Brother Lawrence and and his, uh, a a great book that I would would recommend to you, unless you're already stacking up books that you haven't read yet, don't read this. Um, But in in his book, Practicing the Presence of God, he says it this way, he says, sanctification does not depend so much on changing our activities as it does on doing them for God rather than for ourselves. 
So here, here's what I want you to think about, right? I just said eat and drink, you know, and hang out with me. Like, and, and some of you are already like, yes, I was already going to do that, right? But, but here, here's, here's what I would ask. With what motive? What was the goal? Was it just to get by? Or is it possible that you could do the same thing in a way that glorifies God? This is a massive New Testament theme for us. If we believe that Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned, and it, it's not like, a, like all have sinned and are going to hell. It says that all have sinned, and the worst possible thing that could happen is they've fallen short of the glory that God deserves. Such that later when we come to see that we are now in Christ by faith, he says that whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all for what? The glory of God. It's not that you weren't going to eat and not glorify God. It's not that you weren't going to drink. You were going to do that or die. But what would it look like for you to be the kind of person that recognizes God is sovereign, has all things in his hands, and then therefore you respond accordingly? You do the things you were going to do anyway, but you do them for God's glory, not for your own selfish ambition. This is important for us. These simple things, these simple things, these simple things might make all the difference. And I want you to see the seeds of the gospel, what Jesus did himself. When Jesus came to save us, he did not do so by bypassing the ordinary human lot in life. He did so by recovering it. He lived a humble life. He worked with his hands, right? He's the guy, he carried a lunchbox to work every day. That's that guy. That's Jesus, a normal guy. We come to find, you know, spoiler alert for this, the last half of this chapter, he was, he was, afflicted. He was stricken. There was nothing beautiful about him that we should esteem him. He was a normal person. If Jesus walked in, you would be so underwhelmed at how normal he is. And yet we see him doing things in such a way that glorifies God, that restores people to a new life. It's pretty powerful because we find out that those whom he restored, they did not escape their lives. In fact, they returned to them more fully right? See the man lowered in through the hole in the roof by his friends, because real friends take their friends to Jesus, right? And the first thing he says, he goes, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. Now this made the Pharisees and the religious people furious. And he says, so that you will know that I have the power to forgive sins, take up your mat, get up and walk. I love it. He didn't say, you're forgiven, now be vaporized to heaven, right? He didn't say that. He said, look, I've come that you might have life, and life now more abundant. In me there is joy. In me there will be peace. So he gives some very simple and powerful ways. And if these seems like these seems like things that like you would overlook, you might have missed the joy that comes from them. So, friend, enjoy the things that God gives you as a gift. Eat bread as though it's the last time you will eat, not as a glutton who operates on a budget of scarcity, but as a person who recognizes that God is good. Drink your wine. I know. Side note here, if you're kind of more Baptistic than the rest of us and this seems scary to you, okay, I got you. This is, this is kind of a thing. Um, we see this elsewhere and I, I would just kind of push on why this is important. The way we reflect on how we do this um, is, is a biblical and a powerful and a beautiful thing and not a sinful and, and a debaucherous kind of thing, okay? But for those of you that when I say, and drink your wine, you, like, there's like joy inside of you, I'm going to push back on you. Calm down, okay? You should probably drink more expensive wine, all right? That will keep you from being an alcoholic because you can't afford to be. <laughs> Just putting it out there, 
If you're really enjoying it for the glory of God, you'll do it in a way that celebrates, and I, I don't know, here's what I would just push back on you, whether it's food or drink, little, little help, helpful wisdom that I would give you, uh, let's go for quality rather than quantity. Fair? And we do so for God's glory. It says, let your garments always be white. Now you ought to begin to picture like a, like a, a wedding dress, right? A great celebration, a preparation for the end of your life. And then he says, let your oil not be lacking on your head. Some practical things here, right? Practical things. And now enjoy the, the, your life with your wife whom you love. Now this could easily go the other way, right? This could easily be enjoy your husband. Enjoy that one you have. But I would say it's going to be impossible to enjoy them if ultimately you're spending all your time and energy enjoying your friends or your family or pornography or anything other than your actual spouse. When you find your joy in them, the one that you love, all the days of your vain life will be full of gladness. And this is wisdom. And this is why. Remember? Because godly wisdom is to live in such a way in this life under the sun that points and testifies to the reality beyond the sun. And I don't know if you caught some of these things. They seem simple, right? They seem like not a big deal like mundane and ordinary, and they become powerful, transformative things for the rest of the Bible. Eat your bread. Oh, eat your bread with joy? What kind of bread? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Drink your drink. Oh, drink with me. Come to the, come to the wedding feast, and I will provide the celebration. Get it? I will give this person who comes to me living water such that then rivers of living water will flow out of them. Because it's it over and over and over again. Let your garments be white. One day Jesus is going to celebrate his victory over death, hell, and sin by dressing us up as his bride, beautiful, shining, and righteous, and pure, regardless of what we have brought to the table. Let not your oil be lacking on your head. This is always a picture of anointing, and then in the New Testament, that anointing is through God's Spirit. Now enjoy life with your wife. Why is that a big deal? Why? Why? Ephesians 5 is the answer. And Revelation 19 is the conclusion. And the revelation of the end of time culminated. You see this picture. And John says, And then I heard what seemed to be a voice of the great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And everyone was crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Now let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For what? These simple things like marriage, these simple things like food and feasting, why are they important? Why? Because they point towards something beyond the sun. Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for in verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has now been made ready. Did you hear it? Did you get, did you get it? Did the preview just blow up in your head? And then the angel said to me, write this down, blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage feast of lamb. Friend, it means something when you love your wife and you eat food with people you love. You break bread with them. You're practicing for eternity. What would it look like for you and me to begin to eat bread, to drink wine, to love our spouses, we love the people around us, to dress and prepare ourselves with the anointing of the Spirit in such a way that people will look at us and go, that looks like the kingdom of God on earth. Can you imagine it? We get a preview here of what God will do forever. So you love your, your wife like, in such a way that points to beyond the sun. 
Now, this is, this is tricky, so maybe you're not married. Okay, well, you're not off the hook. You've got two options, okay? You've either got to read this and think of this as a preparation to be married, okay? Or secondly, you're not off the hook. You're responsible for the rest of us who are. You're, you're to call us to account. You're, you're to say, Jonathan, I don't see you laying down your life for your wife like Christ did the church. You're not enjoying life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. You, you, need, to do, you need to be that person. Married people, when a single person rebukes you, it's a fresh perspective you should receive with joy. Right? The, the, the strike of a wise man is it's an oil, an anointing for our head. And don't think that they don't know. I, 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 I don't believe that at all. I remember um, when I was young as a pastor, I remember the first thing I encountered was a bunch of old jaded pastors who were washed up and like hated life. And I thought, oh my goodness, I wish I could tell them what I see. That's the same thing here. You can't smell your own house. You've gone nose deaf, right? And there are people around you who maybe aren't married and they can see you and go, hey, time out. I think that if you're going to be married in such a way that points to the marriage feast of the Lamb of God when he comes to redeem and restore us all, you're going to want to do it differently. And that ought to be a good little piece of advice that we take with joy. So we love, we eat, and we drink like we would beyond the sun. Go to dinner. Pour into relationships. Work hard. Whatever you find to do, do in a way that glorifies God. Do it. Because Christ is enough. And the ways in which we do this now point toward a coming reality. A joy that has no end. Let's pray together that God would begin to do this in our midst. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your care for us. We love you for all of these things. Father, the truth is that uh, we tend to take the things around us and we use them for our own glory. We use them for our own benefit. I ask that even now you would begin to transform the way that we experience even this day the ways that we experience the interactions with people. May we not be pushing back or avoiding death, but may we see it as a welcome thing, a thing over which Jesus has victory. Foolishness, death, and sin and evil does not get the last word, but in Jesus Christ, victory and joy, contentment and gladness do. God, forgive us of the ways that we, we're either in denial about our own life Maybe we have too high a view of our own self and we act like we're never going to die. Maybe we're in denial to the point where we're just kind of pushing back, not embracing the truth that the friends we have around us are priceless. The sustenance, the meals we get to celebrate together have an eternal nature to them. They point to life beyond the sun. So now let everything that we say and do and sing be laid aside. May it be put upon an altar to glorify you. And may even in the simplest of things we do so for your glory. May we begin to experience the joy of knowing what life beyond the sun looks like even in the little things we do now. In Jesus' name, amen.